0: We were discussing last time uh, Martin Luther, his uh, beginnings of the Reformation movement. We talked a little bit about the 95 Thesis, the thesis that had 95 points in it, uh, why he disapproved of uh, certain aspects of the Roman Catholic uh, Church, particularly indulgences because they had gotten out of hand. And uh, he made the statement, though at this time he was still... In defense of the indulgences, he just thought they were being uh, abused and and misused. But his point was that because they were being uh, misused in this way, that people began to fear the punishment of sin and weren't really bothered by the sin itself. I think maybe that's a good point, isn't it? That's a good point. And that's why I think Christianity is based on uh, is there an aspect of fearing uh, eternal punishment? Absolutely. Absolutely. Rightly so, right? We ought to fear uh fear eternal damnation. But can that be our sole purpose in being faithful to God? Well, that can't be our sole purpose, can it? As Christians mature and grow, they begin to understand, and we mentioned this a little bit last time, and we see that in our love for our earthly parents, don't we? Maybe as a child, starting out as far back as we can remember, uh, being trained to obey, we feared corporal punishment maybe, or having something taken away, or some kind of punishment some way. But as we grew and matured, and maybe even uh, while we were still at home, we began to love and respect our parents for who they were. Did we always enjoy the chastisement? Well, I don't know that anybody in, enjoys chastisement in any way, right? But we can see the benefit in it. Uh, I was having a conversation with Cameron the other day, and we, I mentioned something of course I was joking around with her about punishing her and, uh, anyway it came up and I said, well when have you ever enjoyed punishment? She said, well I haven't been punished very often. I said, but you've never enjoyed it, trust me. And so, uh, so we don't enjoy the, the, uh, responsibility as parents of having to punish someone. As children we don't uh, enjoy it, but as we grow, that kind of takes a back seat, doesn't it? Then we become, uh, we get to the point where we where we love and honor and respect our parents for who they are, for what they've done, and how we feel we owe a debt to them, right? I think I, you know, I feel like I owe a debt to my father, though he's no longer with us. I still owe him uh, a debt in how he formed me to be the person who I am. And, uh, not always uh, uh, ideal, but uh, take away the defects, he helped me to be a better human. And so that's the way we look at it with God. And Luther pointed that out. He said, you're buying indulgences to sin, to commit sins you haven't even done yet. I mean, that's that's the point it had gotten to. And so they were fearing the punishment. They didn't care anything about the sin. It's okay to sin as long as you don't have to suffer for it. And so he began to understand that's not at all what God... Uh, demanded from his followers and it's found nowhere in the bible is it at what passage in what passage do we find about a person paying money so he can commit a sin and receive forgiveness of that sin that's wholly apart from the bible isn't it the bible is very clear on how we're forgiven of sin we first have to acknowledge the sin right we have to acknowledge it for what it really is we know that is godly sorrow right uh, that we've sinned against God, we've harmed God in some way, and that hurts us to know that we've done that. That leads to repentance, and repentance means we don't do it anymore. I don't see any money changing hands there. You know, there are no money changing hands. And so Luther was pointing those things out. And, uh, of course, he fought against uh, uh, this man, Tetzel. We've talked about him. He was the proponent in Germany, and he really pushed those indulgences. He was making a mint for the Roman Catholic Church, and we talked about how they would farm those out. And uh, so uh once uh, he began to speak about the heresies were that were true heresies against God, the uh the archbishop wanted him to recant. He said, You have to recant that. You're going to be punished. And I remember at this time he still isn't of the mindset that I want to Reform, as it were, the Catholic Church. I'm not an enemy of the Catholic Church, but he was getting there. He was coming to that point. And so, uh, he named, uh, uh the statement in, in, uh, 50, uh, in the 58th thesis that the merits of Christ work effectually without the intervention of the Pope and that which, uh, said the sacram- uh, sacraments are not, uh, Efficacious apart from faith in the recipient. Uh, uh, We don't need man's intervention, do we? As far as receiving uh, repentance from God. We might need someone to encourage us to repent, but it is God who brings about that necessary result, right? Through our godly sorrow, through our desire to repent and confess to Him, He forgives us apart from the man who calls himself the Pope, right? Apart from anybody else. Uh, Now, if we sin against somebody, we need to go to them when we need to repent of that, right? If we sin in the public way, we need to uh, acknowledge that in a public way. But it's still a sin against God. And so uh, Luther refused to recant. And so in the end, uh, he was still ordered to recant, but then he appealed to the General Council of uh, Wittenberg. Now, here was the issue. Here was the problem that the Catholic Church faced. Martin Luther was very popular because of his teachings among the people. In fact, three out of five Germans, and remember, all this is taking place in Germany, three out of five Germans... Supported him. Okay. Uh, The main problem. Rome. People in Rome. Supported Rome. Right. You recall when Luther went to Rome. How disappointed he was. Of the sinfulness that was going on. So. uh, They didn't want to change anything in Rome. But outside of Rome. You had these people who began to think about what was going on. Martin Luther being one of them. And so as he talked about it. The people having sense, good common sense, could see a disconnect between the Pope's behavior, between the Bishop's behavior, between the priest's behavior, and what God wanted them to do. Even though they didn't have access to the Bible, they still understood that what was going on wasn't right. Okay? How is that possible? Well, I think God has instilled in every person this sense of awe. That's one way we can... We prove that God is who He is, that there is a God. We know innately in our in our own selves that when something's wrong and when something's right. We know it is wrong to take something from someone that is not ours. We know that from an early age, don't we? Good example, uh some of our friends in Memphis, uh, the kid across the street used to come over and play with uh their grandchildren some and so he'd come over and play with the toys and on the way out, he had this shirt on and it was just full of stuff and it was just sticking out to here. And he, uh, you know, goofy little kid like he was, he went up and he said, now I'm not stealing anything, I've just been eating a lot. <laughs> now he was a little fella, okay? He knew it wasn't right to take something that wasn't his. We know it's not right to go next door and, and, and take someone's life. We know it's not right to uh, steal a, a man or a woman's wife or husband. We understand all those things. It's so the people, though, they didn't have access to the, to the Word of God outside of a few Psalms and a few chosen passages in the, in the Gospel accounts, they still recognize when a person's being a thief, when a person's being a hypocrite, and they see all of that. And Martin Luther was the man behind whom they could gather their forces... And so he was very popular, and that was a big issue for the Catholic Church, and one that uh, uh, they would not be able to deal with very easily. So they kind of changed their, their technique. They wanted, let's, let's be kind to Martin Luther. Let's compromise with him a little bit. Let's be friendly and pat him on the back and see if we can't convince him to at least backtrack on some of these big items. That's causing us so much trouble. And that was the issue they faced. Any comments? Question, Brother Joe? Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. Brother Joe makes a statement, you know, it was, uh, uh, walking by sight. They, they enjoyed or they felt better about hearing someone regarding the confessional, uh, your sins are absolved. Go, go, go in peace. Your sins are absolved. Uh, because when we, when we ask God to forgive us, how do we, how do we know He forgives us? Well, we know the steps we have to take to be forgiven first, right? We learn that in His Word. And if we do that, we have to have faith and belief in Him that He'll do what He said He would do. Well, that's the basis for faith, isn't it? It's that for which we hope. What do we hope for? Well, we hope for eternal life, and while we're on this earth, we hope for forgiveness when we commit sin. And so, it is materialism. And that's what all, every denomination Every denomination in the world is bound up in materialism. Every one of them. Uh, we look at the Jehovah's Witness organization. They want to live on earth. A new earth. 144,000 in heaven and, and everybody else on earth. Well, that's absolutely incorrect. Uh, all premillennial uh, denominations want to, want to live on this earth. They want to live on this earth. You know, they've got to have this place. You know, we read about that throughout the Bible, people having those attitudes. You know, it, it's all caught up in materialism. Been real smart and, <laughs> and that's true, isn't it? You know, and, and, you know, we say that kind of jokingly, and Ron makes the point, he should have bought some indulgences to cover what he was doing. But that shows the ridiculousness of where that leads to, doesn't it? Has to, has to. Well, what well, what can they say against Martin Luther? They say he's sinning, being a heretic. Well, what if he just bought a few indulgences and just kept on talking? Well, that wouldn't work, would it? They couldn't have ever stood that. And so, but we see the direction in which we go, and we have to take something to its final point sometimes to look at it and say, is this really what we want? Look how far away we're getting, you know. If we get on uh, Interstate 75, and we're going north, you know, if, if we have to look at the end of the road at some point, don't we? Do I want to go all the way to the end of the road, or do I want to get off somewhere? Or do I need to come back? And sometimes we need to look and say, well, I need to go back, and that's what the Restoration Movement is all about, isn't it? Going back to the Bible. Good comment. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And and that's what it boiled down to. And we see that in these indulgences. Money is the prime mover. Worldliness, themes, right? Uh, You know, is it wrong to, to have money or to enjoy money or to like money? No, not at all. Uh, you know, I don't know anybody that couldn't say, you know, who, who's not independently wealthy, that couldn't say, you know, I could use a little more money from time to time, as long as we put it in its proper place and we understand exactly that it is a tool. But see, the Catholic Church was just like any other worldly organization. They wanted money. That's why they were farming out the indulgences. They couldn't wait on the money. They'd hire someone, much like a publican, you go out, you give us the money, you buy the contracts from us, then you go out and sell the indulgences, and if you make a little extra, that's fine too. You know, it's all about money. <clears throat> I heard a, a, a trader say one time, you know, you can't you can't make all your money on one trade, you've got to let the other guy make his nickel too, right? And so uh, that's kind of the way they looked at it. And it, it, it did boil down to money, because money equals power, right, with people like this. And so this is what Luther's fighting against. You know, when we look at Luther, <clears throat> though he was, uh, not correct where he ended up, we still, I think, uh, owe him a debt of getting the ball moving or help to continue to push the ball, uh, from wh- excuse me, from where he was. Any comments? Anything else? Absolutely, and Jane, you know and that's that's the bottom line, isn't it? We do not have to pay anybody for anything. Jesus paid the debt because we couldn't pay the debt and live. Jesus paid the debt. And God will do what He says He will do, and that is walking by faith. Exactly what Brother Joe was talking about. Wonderful statement. Wonderful statement. Now, if you remember. Uh, we talked about a representative being sent to speak both to Tetzel and to Luther. Because there was this big problem, right? Luther was on the hills of Tetzel. You recall he said, if I'm able, I'll knock a hole in his drum, whatever that means. Put a stop to what he's doing. A colloquial term, I'm sure. But John Etzel, he wasn't allowed to... Uh, to leave his convent where he was. Couldn't get together because the people opposed him so greatly. Remember, about three out of five Germans supported Luther. So you've got a vast majority of Germans supporting Luther and against Tetzel. And so he couldn't get together. He had to stay hit out, you know. Maybe that's a red flag. You know, if you're having to hide from the populace because uh, you know you're doing something that is shady, you might want to consider what you're doing, right? And so... Uh, uh after having met with Luther, this uh, uh representative disowned what Tetzel said. He began to disagree with Tetzel. And he didn't want uh people to to uh, fall for that. And so uh uh he also shared his disagreement with the methods the church was using. You see, the church would use a heavy hammer, they'd come down on you. And we're going to notice here in a few moments, if they couldn't get you through ecclesiology, through the organization of the church, through church politics, they'd try to go after you uh, secularly. And that's what, ultimately what happened to Luther. They tried to go after him secularly. And we'll get over to the diet of worms here in a little minute. But anyway, uh, after having this interview, uh, Luther wrote the letter that he was asked to write to... Uh, Informed people, he still revered the Roman Catholic Church. He still honored the Pope. He again was fighting against Hetzel and the misuse of indulgences. So he wrote the letter. He wrote the letter. He did that. So kind of their uh, uh, nice approach worked. Well, as this was going on, a man by the name of John Eck got a hold of this. And so what he wanted to do... Because he wanted to challenge Luther to a debate, John Eck was uh, was the bulldog of the Catholic Church. He wanted to defend everything everything Roman Catholic, and uh, uh, because of John Eck, Luther began to rethink his beliefs. Okay, John Eck begins to uh, approach him, begins to put pressure on him, so. Luther begins to rethink his idea about total supremacy of the Pope. Well, that's just a logical next step, isn't it? When you begin to look at the things that an organization does and you're you're beginning to disagree with them and you see where they're wrong, that eventually leads you to the head of that organization. And so, because of all his rethinking, it challenges him <clears throat> to uh uh to a debate. And so They debated. Now, let's learn a little bit about who John Eck is, okay? John Eck was born on November the 13th, 1486. He died on February the 13th, 1543. He was a German theologian. He was a bishop, Catholic bishop. He was an uh, early counter-reformer, okay? And he was among Luther's most important debaters against who he went against, okay? Now, as early as 1517, Luther thought he kind of had a friendly relationship with Eck. Well, that proved to be untrue. Eck went on this attack against Luther, and uh, uh, originally Luther thought Eck had similar views as he did. But he was this counter-reformer, right? And he wrote, "Uh, and how do I pronounce this? Obelissi, okay. Here's what Obelissi is. Someone writes a a, a paper, so let's say the Ninety Five Thesis, for instance. In the margin, an Obelissi is a statement disagreeing with that, saying that's a faulty view. So he took the writings of Luther and he comes through and he edits them, and he puts footnotes and he begins to say why he disagrees with Luther. And so he attacked. Luther's writings, showing that they were not what uh, uh, Luther intended them to be, and so uh, he accused him of heresy. Now, that's a big crime in uh, the 1500s in Germany, living anywhere within that Roman Catholic Empire. That's a big crime, heresy. In fact, it carries with it a death penalty. And so... Uh, Luther accepts this debate, but it's very dangerous for him because John Eck was someone who, when he went into a debate, he attacked the individual and tried to get them in some way, and he was a very uh, uh, wonderful speaker. He was very personable. He was very smart, and he could sway an audience. And he tried to get his opponent, of course Luther in this instance, to declare something that he could accuse him of heresy. Now, one of the things he wanted him to declare was that he agreed with the Hussite theology. Okay, now, let's understand who John Huss is. John Huss came about a 100 years before Luther. He came after Wycliffe. In fact, he was uh, influenced by Wycliffe. Remember, we talked about Wycliffe uh, early on. Translating the Bible. And he was born in 1396, or 1369 rather, and he died on July the 6th, 1415. Okay, now, he was from Czechia, Slovakia. He was a theologian. Okay, he was a philosopher. He was a master. He was a dean and rector of the Charles University in Prague. So he was a highly educated man. He was extremely smart. And he became a church reformer, and he inspired what would come to be known as Hussites, okay? Followers of his through his teachings. And so, uh, he was a key predecessor to Protestantism, right? Protesters of the Catholic Church became the Protestant movement, and so... Uh, he was a key figure in the Bohemian Reformation. That was, uh, in that area. Finally, the people agreed, we're not going to vote for another Catholic monarch. We're opposed to all of this. We do not believe that the Pope has supreme authority. And so that were the people, those were the people that, uh, followed after John Huss. And after John Wycliffe, he was considered the very first church reformer. So he lived before Martin Luther, he lived before John Calvin, who came uh, helped to propagate what we know as Calvinism, and Zwickley, he lived before that individual as well. Now, his teaching had a very strong effect on Western Europe. Again, the Bohemian Reformation, uh, they uh, uh, became... That movement became a denomination in uh, competition to the Roman Catholic Church. And so, because of his rebuke, the Catholic Church declared him a heretic. He's standing up against the Catholic Church, particularly in the area of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, saying that the actual body of Christ is in the bread. He said, That's not true, that's false. Uh, ecclesiology, the organization of the church, polity, the politics of the church, who's in control, who's not, is the Pope the supreme leader of all the world. And again, at that time, the Pope would declare who was going to be emperor somewhere. So, Huss is standing up against all of that. He's rebuking them. He He's uh, in, in opposition. And so, In essence, what he did was he denied the deity of the Pope, and that's really what the Pope claims, isn't it? I'm the vicar of Christ on earth. I am in Christ's place. That's arrogant. Beyond compare that someone would claim that. So, what do they do to John Huss? Well, they take him out. They tie him to a stake. They burn him to death. That's what you get when you're a heretic, right? Now, because of his teachings, he inspired this movement. And from uh, 1420 to 1431, uh, the Bohemians rejected and fought against papal crusades that would go in and try to reestablish Catholicism in the area. They stood up against that. And it wasn't until 300 years later, uh, almost 300 years later, uh, in the 1600s that uh, the Catholic Church finally came down on them and was able to defeat them and, and usher in another era of uh, Catholicism in that part of Western Europe. But all of that came about because John Huss stood up and rebuked the, uh, the Catholic Church. And so John Huss became synonymous with heresy. Who are you to, to stand up against the Catholic Church? So it was that man... Who John Eck tried to tie to Martin Luther. Cause he's trying to find some way to accuse Martin Luther of heresy. And so he chooses, uh, John Huss. And it worked. It worked. They had their debate. They met. John, uh, John Eck was very, uh, uh, a wonderful speaker, very smooth in his delivery. And so uh, he was so good at what he did, he would misquote uh, Martin Luther. He would change the meaning of words that Martin Luther would use to make it uh, intend something Martin never meant for it to intend. And so when he left the debate, he left at cries of victory, especially from his supporters. And so what does Martin Luther do? The debate's over. He goes back to Wittenberg kind of with his tail between his legs. He's discouraged, but he still writes a document. And he writes this document describing the debate for people to read. And he puts forth the arguments that Eck made. He establishes what he said in response, and it was a huge hit. It went throughout the country. And people were able to read that document and see where Eck was being dishonest. He was manipulating the statements that Martin Luther said, and so Martin Luther really got a huge boost to to, uh, his work. Any comments, questions? Well, this debate, which was the first one Martin Luther had been... Uh, engaged in with the European controversialist. Of course a controversialist is someone who likes to or is good at debating or likes controversy right And so on the on the print on the uh, uh, surface of it it looked like Martin Luther was defeated. But once everybody got a hold of this document, now everybody, the common person especially began to support, and follow after Martin Luther. Now, this was probably the single greatest debate Martin Luther ever had in his career as someone who pushed for Reformation because it was at that point he went from revering the Pope, honoring the Pope, saying indulgences were were not sinful, they were something to be revered, They had just simply been mishandled and abused. He went from that to understanding fully what his position was. No longer was he just simply critiquing the church, particularly John Tetzel. Now he came to the point where he understood and he knew that was something that was contrary to God's Word. And in his own mind, it solidified what he knew was right and what he knew was wrong regarding indulgences, regarding the authority of the Pope, regarding all the things really that Roman Catholicism stood on. And that was why it was such a great moment in his life. And not only did he come to that realization, through these documents that he released, the people came to that realization as well. And what was it that the Roman... Catholic Church feared above all else losing the control over the people that they had invested so much time, effort, and money in gaining. Uh, chaining the, the the Bible to the pulpit. If You want to look at it? You walk up on the pulpit, which you're not allowed to do, or the dice, and uh, look at the pulpit. But even if you were allowed to do it, you couldn't read it anyway because it was in Latin... You didn't have anything in the in the barbarian tongues such as German or English or, or anything else. And so that was one way of control. He spoke out against indulgences. And by speaking out against indulgences, just like Brother Joe had mentioned, he was in essence speaking out against the whole confessional uh, fiasco. We don't need someone to tell us that we're forgiven. Ultimately, God forgives us if we do the things necessary. Now, if I sin against uh, Doc, I have to go to him and ask his forgiveness, and then God will forgive me. Right? But I have to do what God wants me to do. So we do still have to interact with one another, but it's not someone who sits behind a curtain or a, a lace veil in a confessional and it says, you're absolved of your sin. <clears throat> who on earth can absolve someone of sin? Nobody. And the only time that's ever happened... It's when Christ walked the earth, wasn't it? He it was God in the flesh. He could absolve someone from sin. But only Him. No one else. And so, this was a big moment in the life of uh, of Martin Luther. And so, uh, he was influenced by this man. John Huss. John Huss was murdered, but Martin Luther could see the benefit in what this guy was doing. He could see the the truth in what he was uh, was preaching for so long. Now, uh any, any comments or questions? Well, how's what's the Catholic Church going to do? How do they react to something like this? Do they just Accept this growing movement and say, hey, you know, we got a group over here. They don't want to be part of us anymore. Uh, go go ahead and let them do their own thing. No. Why can't they do that? Why is it not in them to be able to do something like that? I think it goes back to money, doesn't it? If you're, uh, if you're getting rid of the peasant who gives uh, his, uh, uh, pennies and nickels to, uh, to your lavish lifestyle, and that was one of the problems, wasn't it? Uh, the the excess of living was also something that John Huss uh, preached against. You know, everybody's poor. Everybody's barely scraping by, just enough, you know, not really enough food for today. And what's happening to the hierarchy of the Catholic Church? They're getting fat and happy up there, eating the best, right? Drinking the best, eating the best. They're, uh, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, you know, you only go around this life one time, right? That, they kind of embodied that. And so, the, the church isn't just gonna lay down. They're not just gonna lay down and allow Martin Luther to get away with this. They gotta do something. And so what they decide to do, they, uh, uh, send out a papal or a papal bull. Now what that does, it takes the conflict between Rome and Martin Luther into the area of life and death. Now, a papal bull is simply a decree written on paper and sent out. If it is decreed that you are a heretic, wherever you're found, the church has the authority to kill you. Whether they want to burn you alive at the stake, whether they want to cut your head off, disembowel you. Whatever they want to do, they can do whatever they want to because it, this papal bull or this papal decree uh, could uh, allow them to do that. Now, within this papal decree, they did give him an opportunity. They told him, You are required to come, present yourself before the Pope, and... Uh, uh, they condemned 41 of his writings as heresies. They ordered his books to be burned. They uh, ordered him to come before the Pope in pain of excommunication to throw himself upon the mercy of the Pope and to confess and retract his heirs, or they would carry out the papal bull. Now this put Luther in a point. He's now he's at truly at a crossroads, isn't he? If I continue down this path, one, once I pass this point, there's no going back. There's no going back. Because now they've given him an opportunity. Recant, deny what you've said, come on back to the flock, we'll act like nothing ever happened, though that's probably not the truth either, but at least we won't kill you. So now he has to make this decision. And of course, we know what history tells us. Martin Luther chose against that. He chose to continue down the path he had chosen. He chose to stand up against the Roman Catholic heresy. And he was willing to give his life to teach other people and to demonstrate what the Roman Catholic Church had been doing for so long. So on December the 10th, 1520, in the, presen- in the presence of a multitude of Catholic authorities, different ranks and hierarchical positions, Martin Luther takes the papal book bu- the papal bull and burns it in their very presence. So that was his answer. This is what I think of your decree. He burned it. And by doing that, he completely uh, rebuked every single thing on which the Catholic Church stood. And uh, he made a statement as he burned the papal bull, and with it the decree, that particular decree, the decretals, anything else that the Catholic Church might decree in any way, uh the Clementines, now a uh, Clementine was a pseudo-writing that uh, the Catholic Church uh, fortunately were able to find. And they said that was uh, uh, God's law. So he rebuked the, the uh, Clementines and the extravagance, the way they lived, and the entire code of Roman law in that one act by burning that papal... Decree. So in essence, he said, I'm not going away. You might kill me, but I've got a following and they're going to continue to listen to what I've got to say long after I'm dead. Now, is that correct? Does a person speak long after his death? Well, the blood of Abel spoke from the ground, didn't it? We're listening and, uh, to the apostles speak to us all the time through the written word. And we're still studying about the things that Martin Luther came to understand as heresy against God's Word. He was quite an amazing person. In comments? Well, let's end on this thought. The church was unable to stop Luther through church politics. So their next step was to Go after him in a secular way. Well, it just so happened, the Emperor of Germany had died the previous year, and so the Pope declared Charles, the King of Spain, as the new Emperor. And so, that was in 1520. And so because of all this problem, and it was, and it took a little while for, uh, Charles, to get over and start handling some problems in Germany because there were some difficulties going on in Spain. And so when he finally got together with those people in Germany, he, uh, uh, in 1520, in uh, 1521, January the 22nd, he opened his first German diet. Now here's what a diet is. I was speaking, uh, uh, talking to the girls about the Diet of Worms. They were kind of disgusted. A Diet is an assembly of people that makes uh, decisions that affect the whole empire. So, King Charles, or Emperor Charles, whatever they called him, he formed this assembly, and Martin Luther was demanded to show up before that assembly. Now remember, there's a papal uh, bull out there that says if you can find him, kill him. And so now that puts him at another crossroads. What's he going to do? Is he going to show up? Or is he going to go into hiding? And with that, we'll find out next week. Thank you so much.